podcasting from the great state of Texas, home to cowboys, boots, and stars that are big and bright, comes a podcast host that sparkles wherever she goes. This is Gums and Gossip. She's the dental educator behind the mask and the hygienist with a lot of heart, ready to share her advice, her stories, and her special guests from the other side of the dental chair. And now, here's your host, Hope Lloyd. Welcome to Gums and Gossip Podcast. My name is Hope. I'm the Gum Goddess Podcaster, and I have a special guest on. Her name is Dr. Dawn Ewing. She is a registered dental hygienist as well. She has her PhD and her ND, which is she's a neuropathic practitioner in Houston, Texas. She is the executive director of International Academy of Biological Dentistry and Medicine, the IABDM. She's author of Let the Tooth Be Known. It's in its fourth edition. I am so excited to have Dr. Dawn on the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited to share the news of biological dentistry. So how did you get started? You're originally a dental hygienist. Tell everybody kind of how you got started into doing all this and you've been practicing for how long? I graduated hygiene school in 77. Back then you didn't wear gloves. You didn't sterilize instruments. You wiped them down and you soaked them in uh, kind of like Barbasol. I mean, it was just archaic and gross when you think about what we did and some of us survived. I love dental hygiene, but I moved out to the country and got a little bored. So I started taking some classes and became an EMT and joined a volunteer fire department, which took me into paramedic classes. And then I got involved with traveling around the world as a flight medic somewhere in that time frame. I got pregnant and gave birth to a son that was autistic, found out that I had heavy metal poisoning and I don't have any fillings. So I didn't understand where all of that came from. And it took me back to school to be a naturopath and then on to integrative medicine, which is what my PhD is in. And uh, my husband was frustrated because our school loans were really high and I was having to go to a lot of continued education in order to keep all my licenses up. It just so happened that Carol Arana, who had taken over for her husband when he passed away, was looking for somebody to take over as executive director. And she asked me and I said, no, I really can't. I've got a neurologically challenged child and I got all these school loans I have to pay off. Tell me what you do. Well, the main thing you do is you find the interesting speakers for everybody for their CE. And I went, oh, wait a minute. I get to pick the speakers and do I have to pay for the CE? No, you don't have to pay for the CE. I said, okay, I'm in. So that, that honestly is how it started. You started your own business as well, right? So you, you ended up, and, and so because of all this and with the autism, how long ago was, so how old is your son now? My son passed away, but that was 30 years ago. And um, he made it to... Oh, 27. So it's really only been in the last few years that he passed away. Um, when he was in fifth grade, we were told he wouldn't graduate high school. So we pulled him out of the school system and homeschooled. 
and he managed to get 20 hours of college credit. So, you know, there are some things that you can do. Yes, it's very challenging, but it opened me up to a whole different world. I, I had never known anybody who went through therapy and I think everybody should go through therapy now, but I, I wasn't exposed to that world growing up. It really did teach me a lot during that time frame. Yes, I have my own practice. I do see people for things like helping them determine if there are heavy metals. I don't take new patients because I got swamped. I do take new patients for things like thermography and I do EAV. So how I really help is find if a person has a problem that is dental related. A lot of MDs will refer to me some dentists refer to me and uh, a person might have a neurological problem where they've got tremors or lung problem they can't find. And I find out that it's a tooth. You can't promise that it's going to take care of everything, but it is amazing how often it does. And so that's primarily how I spend my time that and with the academy, doing all the academy business. Why did you have metal? Did you find out why you had metal in your body? Oh, sure. Um, I have an MTHFR flaw, which is a genetic flaw that uh, allows mercury to come in my body, but doesn't really, my body doesn't know how to get it out. You think back to when I was very small, I had all my vaccines when I was small. I started wearing contact lenses in the second grade and the eye industry is really one of the first industries that took mercury out and I couldn't wear my contacts because my eyes were bright red all the time my mom took me back to the eye doctor and he said oh you know should have thought about it red hair blue eyes fair complexion probably have to put her on contact solution for sensitive eyes which that took care of the problem then later in school I'm probably in fourth grade by then we, we passed mercury around in our hand. I don't know why, but we did. I did too. I was going to share that with you. We, we sat there with the ball, the thermometer, and I did the same thing. And I've told that to people and they think that's so weird, but that was something, it was cool to do that. Yeah. Then uh, I didn't want to get pregnant while I was going through hygiene school. So I was using a contraceptive called the sponge which many of those items have mercury in them, especially as a spermicide. Uh, then I had my hepatitis C vaccine while I was in hygiene school, and they couldn't decide if you were going to have a series of three or six, so the school made us do six. Then I was exposed to mercury, of course, in the dental hygiene program because you're working on mercury all day long. Um, so that's pretty much how I got my exposure. It's just that my exposure started in very small increments. So I didn't really feel like I was weird. Uh, I tried to get pregnant. I had four miscarriages and then I had my son. So each time I got pregnant, I was so toxic, it wasn't conducive to life. So the body was smart enough to say, yeah, this isn't going to work. And it just kicked it out. But then my son, his exposure started in utero his blood mixed with mine. And it's a great way for a woman to clean up is to get pregnant. So by the time I found out I had as much as I had, I, I better understood how my son had issues because his mercury level. Do you remember the other thing I was thinking of is mercuricomb? Do you remember the red mercuricomb? Yeah, your mom put it on everything. We did in her mouth. If you had like a sore or something like that, you would stick that mercuricomb everywhere. Nobody knew 
how damaging it was and it, that mercury was going to be like that. And so it's really interesting how, how did, when you go in, is it a specific test? Is that what it was that you know your levels of mercury? Is that kind of how it works? The first thing you do is blood work. You can't find heavy metals in blood work. That's not why you do it. But you want to make sure that a person's kidneys are functioning and that they don't have any anemia. And then I usually suggest a hair test. A hair test is a horrible way to see if you have levels of heavy metals. But it's a good way to see if your body is smart enough, if you do have heavy metals, to be able to throw it out. So in my instance, when I did the third test, which is a provoked urine test, you swallow a couple of pills of DMSA or you get an injection of DMPS or EDTA. It's like little guns going into every cell and saying, there's a stick up. You got heavy metals, dump it. And you collect six to 24 hours worth of urine. And what you find out is, whoo, look, um, my husband, when I was doing his test years ago, showed up with incredible levels of lead really high levels of lead. And then we cleaned him up and then he became a flight medic as well. And later he started having a, a really bad head bob. And so I redid the heavy metal test and bismuth shouldn't be over four, but his was 770 because he was taking Pepto-Bismol every day. So he overdosed on it and it causes neurological problems. So it's not just mercury. There's lead, there's aluminum from years of using underarm deodorant. Um, I mean, we are exposed to so many things and many of us are just little magnets where we get the stuff in, but then our body just truly doesn't understand how to detox correctly. I think I get the most frustrated when a patient will come in and say, oh, I'm doing a heavy metal cleanse and I'm doing Andy Cutler's protocol, or I'm doing this protocol, and I'm going, look, you don't understand. If your body doesn't work correctly, like mine didn't, you can move the heavy metal from the inside of the cell to the extracellular space, but it won't go into the potty. It'll go back into another cell. So you're moving it and you're cycling it through your body, which is really not good to do. It's not something you should do on your own. I usually direct people to ICIM, ed.com, which is the International College of Integrative Medicine. Those are nurse practitioners, MDs, DOs that are properly trained in chelation. Whatever you're using to chelate will also tag on to heavy metals, um, but it'll tag out minerals, your calcium, your magnesium, your zinc. So you can easily get yourself into an electrolyte imbalance. There isn't one product that takes out everything. At least we haven't found one yet. So when somebody tells you, oh, um, do this and it'll take out everything, it, it won't. I had to use something different on my husband for his lead, which I used EDTA. And then I had to use something different for the bismuth. It's just not something you do on your own. You find somebody to help you, guide you throughout the way, and then intermittent testing to make sure that it's actually working. How long is the process to do something like that? Different for everybody. Like I said, I have an MTHFR flaw, so my body wasn't working correctly. So the first year and a half that I did chelation, I got nowhere because the doctor that I was working with didn't even know that that was going on because he didn't retest. And when we retested... I was in the same place, but I'd been going through IV chelation. It just hadn't removed it. 
just moving it around. Yeah, once I found out I had the MTHFR flaw and I corrected the methylation issue, it's kind of like if someone is colorblind and you say, hey, I've got red cups and green cups here. I want you to throw away the green cups and, and wash the red ones and put them away. And at the end of the day, you look in the trash can and you go, where are the green cups? There's no green cups here. You know, Dawn, all the cups look the same to me. What? Uh, yeah, I washed all the cups that you had here and I put them away. And so I look in the cabinet and I go, no, the green cups are here. Why didn't you throw them away? They all look the same. Are you colorblind? I don't know. Well, let's take that person and put some special glasses on. And now they go, oh, look, there's green cups. Okay, I didn't fix their problem. I just put on a pair of glasses. So you can't fix a methylation problem, but you can correct for it by taking special methylated B12 and, and folate. You know, when I was trying to get pregnant with my son, because my OB did understand that I had miscarried several times. So his school of thought was, well, let's give you higher doses of folic acid because in that time frame, it was supposed to be the thing to do to prevent spina bifida. So I was taking quite large doses of folic acid. I also have the part of the MTHFR flaw where I don't have the enzymes to break down folic acid into the usable form of folate. Therefore, I just had toxic levels of folic acid and nobody knows what that does. So it, it is really finding people who are educated to help guide you. It's just not as simple as it sounds. And oddly enough, some doctors will try to chelate while you still have amalgams in your mouth. And then again, there are dentists who will remove your amalgams and not follow a safe protocol. So then you end up with a double whammy. I, I usually try to show people, here's a patient that doesn't detox correctly, who just had three small fillings. And here's what they look like afterwards when a dentist removed those fillings without protocol. It would take 30 years to get that out now. That was a horrible judgment call on their part. So you just don't want to make that bad decision. It really takes a functional or integrative physician to help you make some good decisions because the dentist can't even tell you if the timing is good to take out amalgams. They can do it. And our biological dentists will do it and follow a protocol so that you don't get exposed to any more mercury. You know, you, you take that diamond drill that a dentist uses and you touch that amalgam and you have this invisible cloud of mercury vapor that you can't see, and they certainly don't tell you about in school. So we have this no awareness that there's anything going on. The assistant is sitting there, the dentist is sitting there, oftentimes a spouse is sitting in the room for moral support, and everybody's getting exposed to mercury vapor. So if you broke a mercury thermometer and swallowed it, which don't do that, that would be stupid, but your body, would process more of that mercury out than if you heated the mercury and breathed the vapor. More of it will stay in your body. It's more bioavailable. So it's the most hazardous thing you could do to be breathing the air that's right around your mouth when a dentist is drilling out a filling. It really takes them being in zoot suits and you being in a nose piece, breathing something other than what's being generated and having a rubber dam and everything else. It's crazy what you have to look like. If you go to um, our website on the IABDM and 
look at the protect protocol. It shows images of what you should look like, what the dentist should look like, and it explains why you're having those steps done. I find it very interesting because you touch base on, you know, between the mercury and, and with, I'll say my age group too, with mercury and the lead and everything that we were exposed to. Do you recommend people like myself just going and having genetic testing to see what kind of genes and things are or what would be known, or is that something not really to be known? It depends on the individual as to whether I'll suggest they do it. A lot of times just looking at blood work, I can tell about MTHFR because there'll be some things that don't look right. Um, You can see a tongue tie. Uh, You just see some certain things that make you guess in the patient's favor. But if they're going to do genetic testing, having a SNP does not mean it's turned on. An example would be being BRCA positive. Does not mean that you're absolutely positively going to get breast cancer and ovarian cancer. It means that you have a higher risk and you should lead a cleaner lifestyle than someone else. But because we do live in a very polluted world and most of us don't eat all organic and we're not in a nice country clean air atmosphere the chances of those genes getting turned on are higher and so me having it of course obviously mine was turned on because i couldn't detox correctly if you get genetic testing is very interesting i mean I, i found out that uh of course i'm not in the sunshine a lot because i am fair complected and i burn so easily but I'm in the sunshine a little bit. I should have some vitamin D. I'm in a sunshine state down in the south. But I have a VDR SNP and I cannot take sunshine and convert it into vitamin D. So I personally have to take a vitamin D daily. I have uh, an ENOS gene that shows up. So I am not able to make nitric oxide as easily as someone else. So I take a supplement of nitric oxide. Knowing those things about yourself, custom tailors what supplements you will take, knowing exactly what you may need or or what form you're going to take. The Gums and Gossip podcast will be right back after a quick break from our sponsors. With Hope Lloyd. Years ago, I had a patient of mine who told me that she bought some machine for like $10,000 and she put her hand on the machine and somebody in Arizona read what vitamins, what everything she needed. I thought that was the craziest thing. Is there like a machine out there that somebody does that? There is a machine that looks at the um, oxidation it really is looking at your antioxidants and through Pharmanex. There's a Zyto, which is also more like a, a biofeedback, but that's not reproducible. So I, I'm hesitant to tell somebody to go try that. I think they were giving her the supplements too, because they had like a monthly subscription where she was paying somebody to read it. And then they, they said, well, you're low on vitamin D or you're low on this. And they would give her the supplements accordingly because she put her hand on some machine. Yeah, it wouldn't be something that I would, I, I, the conventional part of me, although I do some unique testing, if something comes up like heavy metals in the unique testing that I do, which is EAV, 
then I want the conventional test to back it up. If I pick up Lyme on something, then I want to do conventional testing to find out what's going on. Um, I do use it, but the conventional side of me says prove it, you know, and we usually can. All these things, I know I sit there and think dollar signs. I mean, it's like ka-ching, 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 but it's our bodies and it's our welfare of what, you know, we're, how we live our best life, right? Um, so I guess, do you eat all organic? Does this make you actually want to go all organic and do everything right? Or do you sneak an Oreo every once in a while? <laughs> I, I'm sure I eat an Oreo every once in a while. I have a sweet tooth like everybody else does. I love vegetables. I'm a blood type O. I eat red meat. I can't get the B12 out of the red meat, which is part of my flaw. So I take a supplement to help with that. I enjoy things like bone broth soup and making those things, making my own yogurt. But those are the oddities of things that I enjoy doing. It's not that I feel like I have to. I am not gluten-free, but many of my patients are. I'm not dairy-free, but many of my patients are. Heck, many of the doctors that I work with, you know, when I plan an event, the biggest nightmare for me is the meal planning. I have an event coming up uh, October 1st, and I will make decontacted dishes. So if I'm going to have, uh, like I'm thinking about having tacos, well, I'm going to have flour tortillas and corn tortillas. I'm going to have an option where I'll have some kind of greens so that you can go down the row and say, okay, I can eat this. I'll put this on there. I can't have cheese, so I'm going to stay away from that. But I can have tomatoes, so I'll take this. Oh, no, I'm nightshade. I have problems with that. Can't do the tomatoes. Okay. Oh, can't do the bell peppers either. Oh, I can have some onions. They'll go through and make their own because I have so many people that are dairy-free, gluten-free, vegetarian. Uh, they're of Jewish faith or Muslim, and they won't eat pork. They don't want to do seafood because they think it has mercury in it. So, I mean, it, it's a nightmare trying to meal plan for a large group of people. Why do you think that people are so gluten-free and dairy-free? Do you think it's the food choices, like things that have happened over the food industry? Or has it always been like that? Because I don't remember growing up with people having such food allergies. Or we just didn't, maybe, did we just not know about it? No, genetically, we have altered so much of our food that here in the United States, most people that are, now I'm not talking about celiac, I'm talking about gluten sensitive. Most people that are gluten sensitive, they find that when they go to Europe, they can have gluten because it's different than it is here. It is very interesting to me when someone comes to the United States and they're going to have some dental work done. They visit my office. They've, they've you know, found a hotel and they went to the grocery store and then I'm the first place that they hit. And they go, you know, last night we went to the grocery store to kind of stock up our, our, our hotel room because we got one with a little kitchenette in it. And I'm very interested. There was a very small section that said organic. But then I turned in the store and there's a huge offering of fruits and vegetables. What are those? And I'm going, yeah, welcome to the United States because we have a lot of chemicals and pesticides and we don't think twice about giving those to our kids. That's what we were raised on. So yes, we have problems that we didn't used to have. We've genetically altered some of our food. And I mean, you look at corn, how many people have problems with corn? They didn't use two years ago, 
but we've genetically altered it as well. So I do believe that we're, you know, we're going to have more and more. Look at peanuts. How many people are peanut sensitive? That that was such an oddity, and now it's become way more normal. I remember when first time. Um, so I go way back too with the gloves. I remember putting on my first pair of gloves, and I thought how silly it was because we just weren't used to wearing gloves and everything else. And I do think back how gross everything was and how secure everything is now. But I ended up. It was a couple years into hygiene, getting a latex allergy and my hands and then it started get progressively you know getting worse and then my throat you know it started but the dentist at the time didn't want to splurge for any other different gloves than what was available and so i was having to improvise with these cotton and then vinyl gloves and it was like horrible trying to you know detect calculus I, I honestly I did the best I could but you know it was just very very hard and it was hot and so it's funny looking back at some of these traditions of what we we went through and I look at now these new hygienists and how the technology and the safety and we're constantly evolving with especially after COVID times there's been so much more protocol of we're hot we're sweaty we're we're overworked and it's just really just being the person we are, you know, taking care of others. Dentistry's come a long way. It really has. I mean, not just dentistry, but all of the medical field. When I started in EMS, we didn't have a box of gloves on the unit for anything other than if we opened up an OB kit, there would be one pair of sterile gloves in there. And it was just one size and it wasn't one size fits all. So it was, you, then you put a gown on as if by magic, you know, everything else is going to be sterile. Here you are delivering a baby in somebody's living room on the floor. It's hardly going to be a sterile environment. But I do remember when I had to wear gloves and trying to start IVs and draw blood and thinking, I, I can't do this because you lose your tactile sense, which you redevelop. I can't imagine now doing all of those things, smearing my hands through feces or blood like I did before, I can't imagine doing that again because I become very accustomed to wearing gloves in everything that I do. But yeah, we did an awful lot of really gross stuff. I started in hygiene. We wore our clothes to work. I wore suits. The office that I worked in was, I don't want to say upper echelon, but it was a really, really nice office. And they required that we wore dress suits, meaning not pants, skirts, and a jacket with the shirt. So we looked great. We look like office workers, but we're in there scaling and suctioning. And then to come back, you know, 15 years later and they're in scrubs. Oh, wow. And then to see jackets on top of the scrubs. So yes, it has evolved quite a bit. What do you think? I'm going back to like the radiography, like with the uh, dark rooms and the fixer, all those chemicals from the fixer and the developer and everything. Oh my goodness. The smells. I still remember all the smells. I'm sure those were not healthy for us at all either. No, not just those, but you think about how often you had to hold an x-ray in somebody's mouth with your finger. I worked in pedo for a, a while and a lot of time, oh, for those that don't know that, that a children's dentist, a pedodontist, 
a lot of times a child, a child couldn't hold a snap array with an x-ray on it. So you'd put your finger in their mouth with the x-ray on top of it against their palate, and then you'd shoot an x-ray. And many years ago, there were, I, I can't even, I don't know how many dentists, but many dentists and hygienists that lost fingers because they ended up getting cancer of the finger because they, it was irradiated so often. It was a nasty habit that we did only when we had to, but we did it often. It's just not a smart thing. To do. I look back at all the things and I'm like, oh my goodness, you know, that it, now I'm like, everybody's so safe, but maybe in 20 years from now, we'll be looking back thinking, you know, what did we do with all that? My mom tells stories about going to a shoe store when she was very small and standing on an x-ray unit to see the bones in your feet. I can't even imagine that, but she swears that that happened. Now my mom's 87, so, you know, obviously that hasn't been done for quite some time. Funny because I remember my, on my dad's and my grandmother, she lived to be almost 100 years old. And this woman, she smoked like a chimney because smoking was really a big thing growing up. Everybody smoked. I never smoked, but it was everybody around would be smoking. But she ended up living to be 99, almost 100 years old, smoking like a chimney. Now, did she have her teeth? No, but <laughs> but she ended up living this like huge life. And I don't know if it's it was the food. I don't know. I mean, her toxicity had to have been through the roof with everything else that they went through but somehow I think that generate they just live to be like a hundred you know I do think that as time goes by some things get stronger and some things get weaker like we said the allergies we have more allergies but we see people living longer not so much cardiovascularly I mean we've gotten overweight as a, a country so there are some things that we're still really remiss on. Some things there's hope for. You know, this, this class that we're doing in October, you know, I try to point out to people, what if I were a 50-year-old woman, which I'm not, I'm 65, but I wish I was a 50-year-old. What if I were a 50-year-old woman and I was slightly overweight and I was really battling my weight and I don't have gums that bleed. And I don't have periodontal pockets. But I go to a biological dentist and they do a salivary test and point out that I have a specific bacteria that is involved with insulin resistance and weight gain. And then they offer me something like an ozone treatment. Or maybe even they go as far as to write a prescription for an antibiotic. And all of a sudden I start losing weight healthfully and my hemoglobin a1c comes down you know so dentistry has changed yet again because we can be more preventive than ever before for me it's a big deal you know we were told in school how does a patient get decay well they don't brush and they don't floss so it's our job to teach them how to brush and floss but then they would come back with new decay and we'd shake our finger and say, you're not doing what we told you. Oh, I am. Let me show you. And they'd show me and I'd go, okay, well, that's right. So obviously you don't know what to eat or drink. You're eating and drinking a lot of sugar exposures. But now if you think about this logically, why would a person get decay on a distal of a bicuspid, but not get decay on the mesial of the molar? 
Each of those teeth are on different energetic meridians. The molar is on a lung and large intestine, and that lower bicuspid is on a breast, stomach, thyroid. So if that person has decay, maybe they have a thyroid issue. So now I start looking at the patterns of decay and go, the only areas you have decay are all on the same energetic pathway. I'm going to put you in the hands of somebody who is going to delve deep and find out where your body problem is so that we can stop the madness about why you're getting decay. Because in the dental industry, we're just taught how to repair the area of decay and send you on your way. There isn't this, wow, there could be something else going on. And yet there is. If what we were told in school were true, you think about all those anterior teeth, all their front teeth, top and bottom, they have thinner enamel than what's on the bicuspids and the molars. And yet, which teeth traditionally decay first? Six-year molars. Those are large intestine molars. You look at a traditional individual here in the United States, and we don't eat and poop 20 minutes later. Now, a dog does. You never feed your dog and not let him outside because he'll poop in your house. If you have an infant, you would never take the infant somewhere and not take a diaper because they're going to eat. And about 20 minutes later or less, they're going to poop because that's healthy. As we get mucked up, we start to slow down. And what becomes average for us, we think is normal. So if I only poop twice a week, I think that I'm healthy. Ugh. Twice a week is not healthy by any means in anybody's book. So now dentistry is taking it a step further. Well, I think it's really interesting that you make that comment because I know even menopausal women, you know, there's a lot of references, you know, between teeth and gum and menopause and andropause with men, you know, and and how hormones even affect how people. And I look back, I was told this, I don't know. Because working in dentistry, a lot of times, you know, drinking water and doing things, we don't have time. We don't have time to go to the bathroom, you know? I mean, I know they say, oh, make time, but nobody has time to actually really do that because you're busy taking care of everybody else. And so instead of taking care of yourself, which is a learning thing, now all of a sudden everybody's like, take care of yourself. It's self-care. But back in the day, we trained our bodies not to go to the bathroom and then it really did mess up things because here we are all these years later and it's like you're having to retrain yourself. Yeah, we do the same thing in schools. It was quite a, a shift for my son when we pulled him out of regular school because uh, he was on prescriptions that would make him have to go to the bathroom often. And sometimes that often might be every 15 minutes. And a teacher can't stop the day and take you to the bathroom that often. And so children learn that they either have to hold it and be uncomfortable or urinate on themselves. And when we started homeschooling, I saw how often he really had to go to the bathroom and I would listen. Okay, you know what? There's he's voiding and there's urine coming into the bowl. He wasn't smart enough to go take a cup and pour the water in. So how do you fake that? You, you don't. It's an issue. And yet in conventional schools, they can't allow someone to have that kind of a problem. So yeah, you're right. We have to train our bodies to do different things. And depending on what job we have, you end up training your body to do things that aren't necessarily healthy choices. 
I want to thank Dr. Dawn for the great information and connecting with her has been so cool. I've learned a lot about the IABDM. It's a network of dentists, physicians, allied health professionals committed to caring for the whole person, the body, mind, spirit, and mouth. And they are dedicated to advancing excellence in art and science and biological dentistry. Dive in a little bit deeper into the world of biological dentistry. So I can't wait to have you listen to part two in a couple of weeks. Bye now. Thanks for listening to Gums and Gossip and your host, Hope Lloyd. If you liked what you heard, help us spread the word by leaving a review wherever you get your podcasts. And tell a friend. You can follow us on Facebook and Instagram. And as always, we welcome your support on Patreon.